Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. On Earth Day in 2010, two historic events happened in the world of American energy. In the Gulf of Mexico, the blazing Deepwater Horizon oil rig fell into the Gulf, eventually spilling 170 million gallons of crude oil. At about the same time, on a military and navy air base in Maryland, something else really important happened. The U.S. Navy tested an F/A-18 Super Hornet, a fighter jet that was fi- that was powered by blend of petroleum and biofuels. If the BP oil disaster was a wake-up call about the costs and dangers of extracting fossil fuels, the US Navy heard it loud and clear. Navy Secretary Ray Mabus set an ambitious goal of providing half of the power that the Navy uses on shore and afloat from renewable non-fossil fuels by 2020. This is say non-fossil fuels because it includes nuclear energy. Can that goal be met? How? What will the impact Will the Navy have on other branches of the armed services and commercial markets for technologies such as biofuels and solar power? That will be our topic of our conversation for the next hour with our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and two experts. We're delighted to have with us the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy and Installations, Jackie Fannenstiel, and Jeremy Carl, who's a research fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. Please welcome them to Climate One. So, Assistant Secretary Fannestiel, let's begin with you. What is the strategic and, and national security aspect of moving away from fossil fuels for the U.S. Navy? Why is it doing? We're, we're doing it to make better war fighters.、Um, we see energy as a vulnerability, both in the short term, tactically.、Um, the largest import to Afghanistan, to, to the actual theater going on, oil and, and water. Um, for every 50 fuel convoys in Afghanistan, we have a casualty, an American who's w- killed or wounded. So there's an enormous tactical vulnerability. We've all seen those、uh, photos of the of the fuel convoys aflame and. Correct,、um, but there's also a strategic imperative here, where we're buying our oil from parts of the world that are unstable sometimes. Um, from from countries that are not always our friends, and that vulnerability, that strategic vulnerability, is something that we absolutely have to wean ourselves off of. Okay, Jeremy Carl, do you agree that there's a strategic imperative or strategic aspect to moving away from fossil fuels? Yeah, I absolutely do, and I think that that ultimately、uh, the things that will be most successful, particularly、uh, within the military context, are those things that really focus on that strategic imperative and improving warfighting capability in particular.、Uh, Things that are green,、uh, just in and of themselves, are nice, but I think are ultimately at risk, particularly in a tight budgetary environment,、um, if they don't actually contribute to kind of core military mission. But I do think that we do have these strategic vulnerabilities that can be genuinely addressed by some of the things that、uh, the military is right now doing with renewables, and the Navy is really the, the leader in that.、Uh, so it's not as though the Navy's suddenly become tree huggers. They're doing this for. Uh, for strategic reasons, Jeremy, you also believe that there's been some hype and overpromise around alter- alternative fuels in the past. Is this time different? 
I, I do have some concerns. I think that, I mean, if you go back again, even to solar and wind, going back to the 70s when these things first showed up, there's been a lot of promises about what they can do that have sometimes been a little more than what they can deliver on the same token. You've had a 60% drop in solar panel prices uh, since 2009. Uh, some of that is structural. Some of that is China. But, I mean, a lot of that is real gains. You have uh, First Solar, actually, a U.S. company is now the low-cost producer. A lot of people talk about China, but they don't they don't realize that. They're based in Tempe, I believe. Um, so I do think these things have been over, oversold at times, but I do think that, that uh, they could potentially be different. Uh, the Navy has set itself a very aggressive goal with biofuels uh, to be sort of 50%. I'm sure Secretary Fanisteel can speak a little more to that. Um, I think that there are it's – it's very ambitious. Um, uh, you know, I, I do have some concerns, and I think those are echoed by, uh, by Senator Warner and some others about, uh, you know, the longer term of whether we'll really be able to get the cost differential down to that being achievable. But, but uh, certainly the – the dollars of private capital that are flowing in to make this happen now are at a much greater scale than they were before. And, and if I might, I think that that is the fundamental question. Is this time different? Those of us who've been in the energy field for a long time have seen ebbs and flows of American interest, American investment, new technologies that look like they will be the breakthrough technologies that, that could have been and then prove not to be. Um, we, we have heard not long ago um, former EPA administrator um, Bill Riley yeah. saying, you know, if it's all based on the price of oil, that's probably not going to work because oil prices go up, oil prices go down, and you see the interest in technology investment going up and going down. And there's a, a seem to be a growing consensus that there needs to be some public policy, some public effort, really long-term, a commitment at this time. And, and I agree totally. If, if we are just following oil prices, it's not going to be really much different this time than, than any other time. There's more fossil fuels coming out of the ground than, than we thought there would be. Um, but there are several things that are very different this time. One is technology improvements. The solar costs are coming down, and that's making an enormous difference. The technology of, of automobiles, um, both hybrids, which is a well-known, well-developed technology, and now I think a greater increase in, in um, electric-only automobiles. So those things, the technologies are improving. But I, I would, advocate, uh, would argue that the interest of the military at this point in promoting alternative fuels alternative technologies is an enormous difference. The military has led in the U.S. in several technologies that have now become standard. They've led in some of the computer technologies and GPS, many others that that we can name. And this time, the Navy has said, we will get 50% of our energy from non-fossil fuels within the decade. And so we're investing, we're purchasing, we're exploring, we're researching in those areas. So what caused that leadership change? Because a lot of these fundamental arguments about the vulnerability of supply lines, that's not new. Uh, I, I hear the point that there's alternatives. Now the monopoly that oil has had. Finally, there's, there's another, some competition in the marketplace. But, but what, I'm very curious about what caused that mind shift in the leadership of the was it a the change of administration? I, I do think it is leadership. I think that it is fundamentally leadership. Um, President Obama has, has made it clear that this is the path that he wants to go down in terms of alternative energy. Secretary Mabus has been out there in front. Secretary Mabus was an ambassador to Saudi Arabia. He understands up close and personal what the oil uh, the, the, the international oil situation is. He understands the vulnerabilities. So he came in as Secretary of the Navy recognizing that we needed to wean ourselves off of that vulnerability and has provided the leadership to do so. Um, within this past year, I think April or, or February of, of this year, of 2011, President Obama directed the Department of the Navy with the Department of Energy and the Department of Agriculture to work towards developing a viable biofuels industry in the United States. He said, you three agencies, do what you need to do, but let's get that industry out there, not just for nuclear, not just for, for military uses, 
but for commercial uses as well. So we're in that, that path. Jeremy Carl, do you think the Navy's out front on this and it's because of uh, the, the leadership of the Secretary? Yeah, I do. Uh, and, and Assistant Secretary Fantasteel is modest in not mentioning her own uh, contribution here, but uh, she, she's been a, a leader, I think. Admiral Cullum also, who's been heading up things uh, trying to, from, from the flag officer level for the Navy, has really uh, been been uh, you know very strong leader here. We've, we've had a lot of interactions with him. And so I do think that, that leadership has been absolutely critical and it certainly, uh, you know, explains some of, I was just down last week at the Naval Energy Forum in Washington, D.C., and one of the things I really took away was it was surprising, uh, you know, senior, senior officers throughout the Navy, uh, not just folks with direct line responsibility for energy, were there uh, giving talks and I think, uh, you know, really showing some knowledge, and I think that shows a priority. Uh, to that I would add, again, I think the real development of technology um, Again, for solar, for example, uh, the whole development of thin film solar printing and the vastly better module efficiencies that we're getting than just a few years ago allows you to have the sort of juice to supply and, and the, the sort of industrial strength manufacturing to make them ruggedized so that you can have something like India 3.5 Company for the Marines where you have these expeditionary uh, forces that have been able to go out in Afghanistan and shed 700 pounds of batteries. Um, that's a real operational gain. And then when you get to those sorts of real operational gains versus what you were doing before, well, if it costs 2 or 3x in the context of the operation, that's not as important as it is for, say, a utility. Okay, So I, I think there's it's a combination of, of leadership and technology. And it's one thing to put out goals. It's another thing to actually meet them. So how far is the Navy long uh, toward meeting these goals of half fuels by renewable fuels by 2020? Um, Secretary Mavis set out those goals a, a year or so ago, and then, you know, he brought me he, in. He and told said, you to make it happen. <laughs> make it happen. You know, let's let's make this work. And people ask me frequently, are these just aspirational goals? Are these just to get our thinking in that direction? And my answer is always, no, they're real. We're going to do them. And so let's let's look at what they are. What are these goals that we're we're trying to accomplish? Um, the first, as you have said, that half of our energy use will be non-fossil, non-traditional fuels by 2020, within a decade. Um, including nuclear. Including nuclear. That half of our of our bases, and that's Marine Corps and Navy bases, or about 100 of them around the world, that half of those will be zero net energy by 2020. In other words, they'll produce as much as they use. That half of our of our non-tactical fr- fleet are trucks and, and buses and cars that we use on bases, for example, um, will be alternative fuels by 2015. That we will sail a great green fleet. In other words, a carrier strike group with the planes and ships that go with that um, will sail it by 2016 and we'll have it ready to go in, well, I'm sorry, we'll sail it by 2012, next year, and we'll have it ready to go outside of, of local operations by 2016. And, and the last is a very important goal, um, because it's a longer term, is that we'll consider energy in our new platforms, in our new systems that we develop, that will make energy one of the deciding factors as we go ahead and, and invest in, in new technologies. So your question was, how are we doing? Um, we're making amazing progress. And I'll, I'll mention two specific areas that, that make the big difference. On the basis half of the bases being zero net energy. That's an enormous hill to climb. Um, Some of the bases are in places where renewable energy makes a lot of sense. They're in places that have a lot of sun, where they have high energy prices that they'd be paying, so these these things pencil out more easily. Renewable power makes a lot more sense. We have some that that don't. Um, The bases are very focused on doing this, and doing this, by the way, within a constrained, a, a financially constrained budget. Nobody has unlimited money to put into this. And so every base that I have visited has an enormous program of energy efficiency that penciled out. They're replacing their lights. They're replacing their HVAC systems. They're remodeling their buildings to be more efficient. They're very much focused on how to do that. And we're doing some smart grid work. We're going to try to tie in some groups of bases on a smart grid so that they can share their renewable power. So on the base side of it, 
Um, they're, they're developing the technologies. They're developing the culture to develop the technologies besides. Very important. Um, on the, the 50% overall, one thing that's important to recognize is that about 75% of the energy that the Navy uses is for operations, not on the bases. So we have about 75% that ships planes and tactical vehicles. That is primarily about liquid fuels mm-hmm. because we're, we need a drop in fuel. We need a fuel that will work with the existing platforms, the existing engines. So we're look, we're working very hard with the biofuel industry. We're making enormous strides in working with them. Will they be ready in the time frame we have? We believe that they will. We are both working with them as a potential customer, and having a customer with the, the kind of demand we have gives them enormous credibility in their marketplace. But we also are using some existing authorities that we have to do some investments. We're working with the Department of, en- of Energy, Department of Agriculture, to be able to do some seed investment in the biofuels industry. Well, what percentage of the fuel the Navy uses today is renewable? It's a very small percentage right now. I would say it's, well, depending on how you consider geothermal, but it's about 10, 11%. Oh, even that high? I didn't realize it was that high. Okay. So you got 40% to go in, in nine years, something like and that. And 11%, 17%, I believe, is nuclear. Uh-huh. So, but, okay. you know. So you're, so you're a third of, well, you got 30 yeah, something, 20, 20 and something. And the, 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 uh, the 10, 11%, again, it, it's sort of a, if you take some of the, if you take uh, geothermal, which is we have a, a, an enormous geothermal facility that's on our base, but is feeding into the grid. So uh, that's heat that's, coming out of the earth that generates electricity. Exactly, and that's sometimes considered as ours, and sometimes it's considered not as ours. And if you take that those megawatts out, then we're down in a couple percentage. So it's, it's a small percentage now, I think, in terms of where we need to go. And it seems that, if I heard you correctly, the big uh, goal is liquid transportation fuels, and that's where second generation or cellulosic biofuels yes. come in. And these don't compete with food stocks. Right. Uh, and how far away are you? have done some testing, mm-hmm. blending this with uh, jet fuel. How far are you away from you from really having that deployed uh, in standard use, some, some biofuels and uh, petroleum? Um, we think that we're fairly close. We have very strict criteria for the fuels that we'll, the biofuels that we're going to use have to be domestically produced, have to not compete with the food stock, have to be at a price point that makes sense, have to be useful in in existing platforms. Makes sense. That means cheaper than regular yes. gasoline. Oh, or regular, regular with regular and, JP8. The, the fuel. And again, because one doesn't know what the price of oil is going to be, so you don't know what the price of JP5 is going to be at any time. But it has to be in parity. We cannot buy quantities of fuel with a subsidy. So um, for long periods of time, we can, right now, we're buying small amounts to test. But, you know, when we get to, to quantity, and, and the last criteria um, criterion I mentioned is they need to be scalable. They need to be able to be up to where we need them. And some studies have said that without intervention, a public intervention, um, it's probably going to be a decade or so before you have these biofuels at scale. But with some kind in, of intervention, and I think we have two possibilities, one is as a customer and the other is, is perhaps as a small investor in the industry, you can get them moving much faster. You can avoid this valley of death that many new technologies go into because you'll help them bridge both with some investment and, and with a contract out there. So we, we are looking to sail the Great Green Fleet by 20, 2012 and then have it, have it beyond just local operations for 2016. That's a lot of, of biofuels. And, yes, it will be mixed with conventional fuels, but it's still a lot of biofuels. Jackie Fannensteel is an assistant secretary of the Navy. Our other guest at Climate One today is Jeremy Carl from the Hoover Institution. Jeremy, is this a good thing, the Navy creating a market for, uh, for biofuels? I think, it, I think you know, I'll give that a certainly at least a qualified yes. Again, I, I probably have greater concern. It's, it's great that uh, Secretary Fannensteel, I think, totally operationally needs to have that optimism about their ability to scale and get those costs down. Um, I have a greater concern, particularly uh, on the cost side. I think on the scale side, we're seeing some pretty 
aggressive things. And, and we, had, we actually hosted Secretary Mabus uh, not so long ago, and he sort of casually dropped into conversation a very large order that the Navy's all, you know, put in for biofuels that is currently you know, in process of being met, uh, sort of at a much greater scale than anything that's been done commercially. So I think that there are genuine security um, reasons at a, at a reasonable budget. Uh, and one can vary on what might be re- reasonable to, to sort of at least test these these concepts. Uh, you know, cellulosic uh, alternative biofuels have been 10 years away for a long time, and I, do, I don't mean to use that to dismiss things because I do think that just the level of seriousness and, and scale is much different now. But um, I wouldn't want to undersell that challenge either. I think there's, um, there's no certainty that we will get to the place we need to be, at least with that respect to that. Some of the other expeditionary things I'm a great deal more optimistic about. Well, let's talk about that cost issue because we've had uh, CEOs of drop-in fuel companies. These are companies that make fuels that can go in existing vehicles, go in existing pumps, go in existing fineries. No one needs to change any of their infrastructure. And they make these pronouncements, we're going to be making this much by this date, and they and they fall back because it's hard to do this stuff at scale. And are, are they coming in where you want them to and, and uh, at, at a price that, that is competitive yet? Or is it something that, well, we promise if, we, if this chart continues to go like that, uh, they, based on extrapolation or, or actuality? We've all seen those promises in the past, <laughs> haven't we? Um, we're working with them, and we... We do see that they have the, the potential to get there at the level, the amount we need, at the price we're willing to pay in the time frame. So all of those things, there is nothing that is, is a deal killer at this point. Um, I've been in the energy field long enough to know that there are a lot of heartbreaks yeah. There are a lot of things that are supposed to be there that aren't. For a deal killer you don't see yet. Or, right? And there are a lot of surprises. I mean, who projected the Prius? Who really thought that Americans would take on that kind of hybrid technology and, and not just be willing to do it, but really make it work? So I, I'm, I'm not counting on those surprises. I mean, we're working very hard to make that happen. And we're working with the industry. We're working with the venture capital community. We're working with the um, academic community. So we're not sitting back and assuming it's going to happen. We are with that industry every day. And so do we think that we're going to get the quantities we need and the time we need them? Yes, we do. One of the obstacles is, is financing and capital costs. It can cost a billion dollars to build a big uh, biofuel facility, whatever the input is, is whether it's corn or sugar, et cetera, uh, is the Navy going to pay for that? Uh, some of the companies say, hey, we're, you know, that's a big capital cost in this mm-hmm. tight economy. Where are they going to come up with a billion dollars for something that is still cutting edge? If I, if I could Jim? actually jump in on that for a second, I think one of the really interesting things, and, and particularly the Valley has slowly learned this after losing a fair bit of money uh, on some, some ventures, is that this is not like the tech industry, right? This, this is, is not, not two kids coding in their exactly. dorm room. Exactly, yeah. and, and it just you, know, you can't stress that enough. This is not a brilliant, unique insight that I'm making here, but but it can't be stressed enough because I think lay people don't necessarily understand that. You have these huge capital costs. The bets are so large. The sorts of innovative, the ways that we're used to funding innovative companies at small scale in this country don't immediately translate. Um, and and the, the funders, so there's, there's a whole cultural shift that is going to need to happen, and new forms of financing are going to have to come up. And you know, there may be a role for the government in, in certain amounts of this. I'm, I'm not wild about um, loan guarantees. That was true even before Solyndra. I'm now even less wild about them. Uh, but I do think that um, there are scaling demonstration plants, sustained basic support for R&D, and these sorts of things are very important roles for the government to be playing. Well, may I, one, one way that we're actually putting, putting some money into this mm-hmm besides our role as a consumer, um, we have existing legislative authority to support through an investment, the Department of the Defense does, support through investment industries that we consider to be or that Congress has considered to be crucial to defense. Energy is one such industry. And so the Department of the Navy, Department of Defense, I think, is actually going to put some money, about $170 million dollars, into a, a fund that will be met by the Department of Energy, Department of Agriculture, 
each putting in the 170 million, you'll have a fund of about 500 million dollars, which then will be matched at least in kind, mm-hmm. at least one to one by private investors. So you'll have then a pot of a billion dollars, and that will be used for new refineries, to redo refineries, to help with that initial capital cost. That's a pro- project that's underway as we speak, where that that will, we won't be picking the winners. We won't be picking a specific technology, but there will be some funds available, which will be equity funds, into some four or five or three, however many we can do, refineries for exactly this point. And then we'll be a customer. And so we'll be able to take some some of the product out to meet our needs. And where are the big oil companies in this? Are they sitting on the sidelines? Are they trying to slow things down, throw gum in the wheels? They're, they're players. I mean, they're every, I think every major oil company sure. has some investment in biofuels. Yeah, I mean, I could just add to that. I mean, yesterday, literally, I met with, uh, with a few other people in Chris Somerville, who heads a, a $500 million effort over here in Berkeley, uh, totally dedicated to uh, advanced biofuel research that's being funded by BP, and it's basically in its entirety. Um, I think maybe there's some matching funds uh, from from elsewhere, but uh, and that's just part of three billion. I think that BP has put into biofuels generally in the last few years. So, I mean, yes, oil companies are going to look after their bottom line, and and there may be strategic considerations and competition, but I think they definitely see broadly that this is an area that at least could be very meaningful, and they're, they're investing in it and not just a kind of um, some of the annoying ways that you'll see them advertising, uh, you know, kind of a very marginal investment but making it act like it's a big part of their portfolio. Uh, I mean, these are actually very serious bets that the uh, billions of dollars are money really even to oil companies. So. And it's not just the military that's interested in this. We are out there right now, but commercial aviation is enormously interested in biofuels. Um, and there's some real policy drivers for why that's happening, right? With that's Europe. right. That Europe is is putting some carbon fees on on landing fees um, in the EU, and so commercial aviation. So European wants vacations are about going to get more expensive well, for everybody, right? And if you can really decouple the biofuel cost from oil cost, which we certainly don't do with ethanol, where you have basically 54% of that coming out of the oil market. So I mean, that's why <laughs> those two markets never really decouple. Um, if you can really do it, that serves for commercial aviation even some strategic goals because they get killed. When, I mean, when oil prices right, spike, when, they I get, mean, you just saw that American Airlines released its results yesterday. So again, and I don't think they, just like the Navy, I don't think they want to put all of their bets just on this one thing. But to the extent that they've got choices and they can arbitrage uh, in, in a meaningful way, even maybe if it's a slight premium to the oil market in most cases, they, I think they'd love to have that option value there. Jeremy Carl is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Our other guest today at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club is Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Jackie Fannensteel. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk about the appropriate role of government here. Some people would say we're venturing into industrial policy here. Jeremy, you're from a free market organization. Uh, is government playing the appropriate, appropriate role here? or the well, this is a subject of lively debate internally, and I should say there's certainly no official Hoover position. Um, my own view, again, is I am I am not a fan personally of uh, sorts of programs where, at a very large scale, you know, Tesla being another example, where we're kind of making bets on individual private companies and investors. I don't think that's the best role. And even as Larry Summers said, it was slightly unprintable. But he said uh, in an internal White House email that the government is not a particularly good venture capitalist. Uh, and I, I subscribe to that. Where, again, I think the appropriate role is is basic R&D funding, where it's critical. Um, I think bridge funding and even even building at a very large cost. If Solyndra had been a demonstration plant and just been run by Solyndra, but we weren't actually kind of giving ownership of that private capital to somebody else, I think that sort of thing, if you really think that from a technology perspective, that's a, an interesting bet to make, that's a slightly different question. I think the, the problem gets in where you get into these sorts of cozy relationships that I think we've seen, again, in Solyndra, even if there was no actual intent to defraud, but it just people's judgment can get kind of swayed. Um, well, on Solyndra, I was told by a reporter that the Bush administration thought when it left that Solyndra was likely to be among the first to receive some funds. So that was already pretty far down the pipeline before some of this coziness came along. Yeah, well, I, I mean, we could go back and forth. I mean, actually, I think the 
I don't, tr- I truly don't think this is necessarily a plus or minus, but I think there's actually pretty good evidence that the Bush administration was going to let that funding go. There was a very large push uh, at the end of the Bush administration to to uh, to get that funded by folks close to Solyndra, and they sort of passed. But I think even placing the blame on one administration, I, I'd rather kind of stay away from that, at least for the purposes of sure. this. I think it's whether it's the Bush administration or the Obama administration or any future administration, I don't personally like to see that type of bet being made by the government. I just don't think it's the best, the thing we do best. But is the government, can the government and taxpayers accept failures? I mean, because yeah, no, private, no. private funding, you know, you put 50 chips down, you know a lot of them are going to fail, some are going to hit big, but taxpayers and, and voters seem to be very risk averse to any kind of failure, even though in the grand scheme of things, there might be more winners than But later. I think when you have a demonstration plant, you kind of take that off the table, and that's why I mentioned uh-huh. And that could be at a very large scale, but it just, then you don't get into the question of, oh, well, this private investor may have or may not have yeah, a cozy sure. relationship. I mean, you, you kind of do things at the same scale, and maybe at some point even you sell it to the person who's been operating it at some kind of very transparent way, but, but you kind of avoid some of these conflicts of interest that I think both politically and substantively, are going to really plague some of these programs going forward post-Solyndra. Jackie Fansteel, how's the Navy set up to handle failures? Some of these bets just go south. Are you ready for that? What's going to be the consequences? Is Navy, is that going to be acceptable? Because it certainly is in the investor community, right? Failure is a badge of honor and courage in Silicon no, Valley, but not necessarily not in, so much. in government. Um, not so much in government. We're, we're out there as customer, fundamentally, primarily. We know what we want to buy in the way of biofuels. We know what price, we know what scale, we know what, what qualities they have to bring to us. That's, that's our fundamental role. Um, we're not attempting, we don't intend to pick a technology. We don't know whether it's going to be, whether it's a feedstock, whether it is Camelino, which is what we used. Um, it's kind is of a, a mustard. A mustard, <laughs> it's a weed, it's a mustard weed, it's, um, used as a rotational crop sometimes. It grows about anywhere. Has some great possibilities. Is it going to be, or is it going to be, um, you know, some other, some other crop? Um, there are a lot of different technologies. We, we do think that we can do R&D and we are doing R&D. We're working with Department of Energy on R&D. So that's all fine. But ultimately, where we are in this, in the entire story, is we want to fuel our ships and our planes with some non-fossil fuel um, product. And we need to be there in, in the marketplace to make sure that that's going to happen. And you can make some companies more viable, get them funding, et cetera, by being that customer and creating that kind of demand pull that uh, consumers may not be quite ready yet to do some of the things on the scale that you're willing to do. That's exactly right. And it's true in biofuels. It's true in renewable energy on bases. Um, we're doing excellent stuff with solar on bases. We're looking for many opportunities to be cost-effective users of solar, whether it's rooftop solar or, or um, parking lot solar or... Um, in some cases, we may have the opportunity to do some small utility scale. Um, we've got about 100 megawatts of solar kind of on the drawing boards now, um, projects that we're, we're thinking about. So that's another area where we're a con- consumer, where we need certain product at a certain price. And be- China, as we all know, has driven down the cost of photovoltaic solar recently. Are you finding that solar is price competitive with traditional electricity on these bases, or what's the cost differential you're looking at? Because you could buy, get good prices because you got right. scale. Um, not yet. There, the solar generally is not yet cost competitive. There are what's specific the, attributes where uh, it is. Um, is it 5% more expensive, 50% more expensive? You know, that, that, that varies so much because it depends on where it right. is and where you bought it from. Um, but we are... You know, we're looking at all different applications. In some cases, um, you know, down in, in San Diego where you can do um, some rooftop, we're looking at China Lake um, Naval Weapons Station, we're looking at 29 Palms and Marine Corps Base. A lot of very, very promising places for those kinds of technologies. Wind has, you know, is a, is a cheaper technology but has some operational constraints around military bases, so... Harder to find the right place for for wind turbines. 
Um, we have geothermal plant, at, as I mentioned, at China Lake. We're looking at other opportunities for that. So a lot of the, the alternative technologies that are, are land-based, based on our, for our different installations around the world, um, making an enormous investment in them. But you're willing to pay a little more. Jeremy Carl, you want to jump in? Yeah, I was just, I mean, and I agree with, with everything Secretary Fannin still just said there. I wanted to just kind of add as a, partly a shameless plug and partly as a, uh, kind of adding some information. So we have a report that we're releasing with the Brookings Institution on, uh, in a couple weeks that is, looks at distributed power broadly, including its security elements. One of the things we did, we worked with E3, uh, which is going to be well known to folks here in the energy community, really a top tier energy consulting group and, and kind of modeled, you know, the, the latest, you know, down to like two months ago costs for some of these distributed technologies like solar and wind. Distributed, we should explain, is sort of small things, not a big uh, industrial power plant. But sure, or at least close to the load. Sometimes distributed can actually be quite large, um, but but clo- things close to the load, so sort of things like on basis. And what you find is there's still a pretty large cost increment in most cases. You'll find certain things like wind, small wind, can be competitive, although it has operational problems for the Navy that Secretary Fannin's deal alluded to. Some types of solar, so some niche applications, but but even with carbon prices, we're still not there if economics is the only criterion, or even if economics in a reasonable climate thing is the only criterion. If you expand the field a little bit, there's some non-quantifiable values that are there that I think, you know, can justify some, but, but again, this is when, when you made the early reference to things being oversold. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about. You see a lot of very bad information. Stuff we have in this report is the best, most current information. It's not politically slanted at all. It's straight down the middle, and, and we've still got a ways to go. And that's from Hoover and the Brookings Institution. What's the ways to go? What's the direction of the prices? I mean, if you looked at a year ago, when solar's gone down, what, 30%? It's great. It's okay. great. I mean, and that's we have a snapshot in time, and we, we say that absolutely in the report. And, and again, uh, we, we've seen tremendous, tremendous uh, improvements, fuel cells, solar, wind, the whole bit. We are getting better. These are no longer science fair projects. There are things that real capital is being deployed uh, against. And, and I'm, you know, I'm very optimistic over the longer term. But I think one of the things that sets you up for failure is when you get these over-promising and then uh, you know, Secretary Fannin-Steel used to work at PG&E and then at the California Energy Commission uh, at the very, very senior levels. And, uh, you know, she sees these sorts of promises come in, and then when they're not delivered on, it creates more problems than if they just hadn't been made at all. So. And I do think that what we are seeing on the technology front is everybody has been looking, in the time I've been in this field, looking for the silver bullet, the technological breakthrough. Aha, this will happen, and we won't have to worry about any of the rest of it. We've not seen that. Um, I, for one, have stopped looking for the <laughs> silver bullet. But what I am finding is some of the unsexiest things, some of the energy efficiency, the lighting, the the um, building envelope, the insulation, the insulation yeah. has made enormous improvements. Refrigerators are just an entirely different technology sure. than they were a couple decades ago. Those kinds of changes, if you really focus them, on them, we see we, we see it's made all the difference. And so when we look at solar panels and the 30% reduction in cost of solar panels, again, that's not a specific breakthrough. That's not somebody working in their garage and say, aha, I found the answer. It's this constant um, American way of improving the technology. A lot of the solar panel, I was just reading an article the other day, a large part of that reduction cost of solar panels is is silicon. Um, a couple years ago, three or four years ago, which is basically made from sand. Sure. Yep, yeah, solar panels, which depend on silicon, were getting quite expensive because there was a shortage of silicon. Now, mm. silicon comes from sand, so it's a it's a it's a, a product that's or a, a material that's available, but it has to be refined or whatever you call it into silicon. Well, supply and demand. There was a demand for it, and now the supply has caught up. Since that supply has caught up, the price of silicon has gone down, the price of panels has gone down. All of those things are happening, and they're happening as we speak. How quickly, you know, what do you want to bet in terms of the timing is, I think, really the big question that we're talking about. 
And there's also the information management aspect. Uh, Secretary Mabus of the Navy, Secretary Mabus was here and said, we don't know where a lot of the energy goes once it's at the base, uh, like a lot of homes or a lot of corporate campuses. So you're doing smart meters. Uh, is that going to have an impact on, on the management of information so all the guys who are running those refrigerators keeping the beer cold, that they know how much that's cost? Is that what we're doing in the base? <laughs> um, enormous difference. We, within the next couple of years, we're going to have about... 98% of all of our electricity on smart meters throughout our bases. And so we are going to know where that's coming from, where, where the um, energy is being used, how it's being used. We're going to be able to do things like compare one barracks to another. We're going to be able to look at the, the ship, um, when the ships come in and plug in, how one ship compares to the other, um, hangars, all of that stuff, which we don't have now. But we want to do more than monitor. We want to be able to use that as a basis to be able to, you know, con- shut down one part of the base if we don't need it and, and still protect our, our mission-critical loads somewhere else. We want to use that as a basis for doing some control on our base. Now, we, let me just say, sure. because the other thing that we want to use these smart meters for is cultural change. Okay. We want to get that information to people who are actually flipping the light switch or changing the the air conditioning um, in their barracks room. We want people to understand in a way that I think they they haven't, frankly, most Americans don't think about the energy they use. This is a really good opportunity. So that that change to the smart meters, I think, is to make an enormous difference on our basis. It's one thing to give information. It's another to put it in sort of budgets and operational uh, responsibilities. We had the chief sustainability person here from Microsoft recently who said, for the first time, Microsoft is putting the budget for the data center, the energy for the data centers mm-hmm. in the data center budget. And it's like before, it's just like facilities pays the budget. I want big servers. I want them fast. I don't care how much electricity they use. Now they got to pay mm-hmm. the electricity charge and oh, things start mm-hmm. to change. So are you going to put the budgetary uh, responsibility in, in the operational chain of command for, for energy? That is... That's an excellent um, comparison with, with, you know, what Microsoft is doing there because we are thinking that way. And right now, the the base pays the the energy budget, the electricity bill for the base, even though they have tenants on the base. They have people who are using the hangars and people who are using the industrial facilities and all of that. So, yes, we need to start thinking about letting them know and then perhaps migrating that big change. It would be a, a, huge, big, yeah. a big administrative change as well as a big cultural change. But ultimately, the culture needs to understand that and, and allow you to get there. And how do you change culture in something as big as the U.S. Well, Navy? And that's This has been a big uh, thing, something that actually I think we're going to be working with along with MIT and the Navy to sort of identify uh, – uh, you know, I hope I'm not pre-announcing anything too much, but uh, you know, identify different ways that uh, that you can change that culture, uh, you know, in all different respects. And it's it's a challenge. I mean, even just incentives. I know one thing. I believe that's being done in the Navy right now is just as opposed to this energy always being free for individual soldiers or sailors, kind of a fee-bait type system right. and rewards. There are pockets of resistance, I think, uh, as one might say, to that. But on the other hand, I think. Uh, you know, once people get that in their mind, what, what has been seen, at least I believe in the initial experimental runs, has been a 10% reduction right. in electricity use by, uh, by sailors just because people are suddenly, they're now, the, the folks in the Navy are aware of, of what they're right. doing. And, and George Schultz is very fond of saying that it's amazing what you can accomplish once you actually just start paying attention to, to, to the thing. And I think the military is now really paying attention to what's going on. And I, that, that's fine. I absolutely agree. Um, we are doing some pilots in terms of, of giving people exactly that information and doing some shadow billing um, on that. So that's going to make a difference. We're doing more in the way of rewards and recognition, just kind of letting people see who's making the biggest changes in their energy use, and making a big deal about that. We have very, very, um, I think, effective programs there. We've actually started, we've started a master's program at the Naval Postgraduate School in mm. energy. Mm. First year, it, two tracks, one in policy, one in operational. So, again, we're trying all ways we can think of to get the word out there. Because when you said earlier that we're, the Navy is going to consider energy and uh, uh, weapon designs, I thought, 
You mean that wasn't considered before? I guess cheap oil was just well, or was was not sort of wasn't. Well, some you know, of these new weapons are incredibly energy intensive. <laughs> I mean, that's so you, you're going to lose. You really need that because you're going to lose a lot of that gain through some of these more advanced guns that are being deployed. But, but, on but if I heard you correctly, energy wasn't a big deal before. Well, it uses what it uses. Performance is what matters. Performance is what matters, and it's probably not unlike American level of their cars for all right, those years. You know, it's it's there. It's something you, you knew, you thought about, but it probably wasn't a decision factor. Jackie Fansteel is Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and our other guest today at Climate One is Jeremy Carl from the Hoover Institution. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk about the political context in which this is happening, budgets, uh, et cetera. Uh, there's potential budget cuts for the, for the Pentagon. Are some of these programs going get, to get, uh, get whacked? We look at these programs as, in fact, being part of how we're going to meet the constrained budgets. We look at these programs as helping us be more effective with what we have. Save money over time. Save money over time, and in some cases, save money in the short term. We have some energy efficiency programs that have good paybacks, very effective paybacks. So we may be focusing more on the short payback programs, but no, we're, we're not putting our energy programs on the front of what might be cut. We, clearly, it's, it's a time within the Pentagon where everything has to be looked at, has to be scrutinized in a way that, that we probably haven't had to do for a while. And, you know, energy is something that not everybody understands the same way we do. But so we need to be able to make the case that energy is, in fact, part of our solution. But we have a Congress that recently tried to go backwards on some mandated light bulb efficiencies. So energy, Jeremy Carl? Mission, mission, mission. And when I talk to people in all different branches of service, and we're not just talking to the Navy, I mean, that is the really key component, is anything that you have that really saves energy but, but does so in a way that, that enhances the core mission, keeps a, a ship sitting there from sitting there and refueling, interesting things the Navy's doing there too, allows patrols to go out further because they're not as dependent on an energy supply line or they don't have to carry as many heavy batteries. That sort of stuff is going to be safe in any budgetary environment even, frankly, if it's at a little bit of a cost increment, I think it'll be safe because that is, again, just the centrality of the mission. I think there are some other things that will be more at risk because they're sort of things that may have paybacks over time or they may be interesting and experimental and push the envelope. But Are biofuels in there? Are biofuels well, at that, risk? That is my concern for some of it. I don't mean to just say that blanket because it's a very large initiative, but, but I think when you talk about it, at least at the top end of those goals, and that's a concern shared by, by folks like former Senator Warner who – you know, as the former chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and certainly in a better place to really understand how those uh, budget appropriations processes work. And a former work. secretary of the Navy. And a former secretary of the Navy. Thank you. So, uh, and, and you know, he's concerned, as I am, in a friendly way. I mean, we'd like to see these things go forward. And there's a concern that, you know, if that cost increment is not able to get shaved down, that boy, it's going to look like a tempting area to 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 cut. Especially because leadership is is obviously not permanent, and political environments and dynamics change. And what you want to do is something that really is permanent and predictable. Well, let's address that. Uh, next year, there's an election. There may be a change of administration, maybe not. I mean, how much of this could be undone, or or, or how much of this will be sort of set rolling that it that'll be some continuity across administration change when there is one? It, it's very important for us to institutionalize this transformation, and we do see it as a transformation of how we, we work with energy. And, and we're institutionalizing it through really many of our programs. What we're doing, biofuels, I think it's an excellent example because we want to be able to purchase biofuels at the quantities we need, at the price we need, that meet the criteria that we've laid out. And that's going to that's gonna happen. We're, we're in the process of making that happen. Once those biofuels are available to us, that then is is what we will be using for our great green fleet. Um, we have we've set in place both both on the bases and operationally um, products and practices that we're not going to go back on. The Marines who are using these new technologies in Afghanistan, like the new technologies. <laughs> they free them from the battery requirement. They have to carry around less weight, right? They have to carry <laughs> less weight. They have these these 
their tents are cooler. They don't need the kind of air con- the diesel um, for air conditioning. They have they've found ways to adapt these new technologies to very specific operational needs. They're not going to go back. Yeah. Those kinds of practices and those technologies are only going to get better. So, will some will is there a possibility of some slippage? Always. And again, I started by saying, you know. If this is all just based on, on oil prices, then, you know, none of it is necessarily secure. So we're looking at setting the, the Department of the Navy, the Navy and Marines, on a path that, that isn't going to backtrack based on some temporary changes. We had a discussion recently here about China and the, the way the government is structured there. And China's current uh, five-year plan fundamentally changes the incentive structure for, for government officials in China and gives them, used to be all GDP growth, grow the economy, the regime stays in power, everybody's happy. Now they have some energy goals as well. So how are you driving down inside the Navy these efficiency goals so that promotions and, I don't know if you get bonuses, whatever, the, the compensation reward structure uh, is tied to energy production rather than traditional metrics? Right. And, and that gets perhaps into an area of the Navy that I'm not very okay. knowledgeable But I can say, yes, they are driving that down. Secretary Mabus has made sure that, that the use of energy and the ability to meet these goals is, in fact, something that, that the, um, the recognition system Beyond medals and, and sort of, you know, stars on the refrigerator, is someone going to get fired yes. if they don't meet the goals or get promoted if they do? Don't, don't underestimate stars on the refrigerator. Yeah. Yeah. As, a, as a parent, like, we know, yes. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think the answer is, will that be the single factor? Of course not. But is that something that would be considered in, in people's um, performance and their career? Yes. Okay. Uh, we're going to be able to uh, put a microphone out here and invite your uh, participation. It's better when you... Uh, step up and participate. So please come up and uh, present your questions. Uh, if you're just joining us on the radio, our guests today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club are Jackie Fannensdale, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and Jeremy Carl, a research fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, let's talk about, uh, while people are coming up to the microphone, the line will form just right over there. Um, sure, okay, we can go ahead, since you were so speedy. <laughs> Yes. That was a forward deployment of a question. So, <laughs> Thank you so much for all the work you've been doing on this issue. Uh, the Department of the Navy has a very um, large presence in the Pacific, in, in the Hawaiian Islands and also out in Guam and the territories. And we understand that there has been a great deal of work done by the Navy uh, in Hawaii, particularly in the algae areas, and also working with some of the former sugarcane Folks, because sugarcane is no longer grown commercially in Hawaii, it's gone to the Philippines. And also I understand that there's been a lot of looking at Guam in particular because there's going to be a troop buildup likely at some point, we're not sure when, on Guam. And Guam being an island with a lot of sunshine, a lot of wind, some tidal. Could you tell us a little bit about those efforts, please? Um, yes, thank you. You get questions. to travel to some nice spots. I do, I do. It is one of the high points in the, um, the position. I've been to Guam four times now, <laughs> um, and we are looking at a marine, building a marine base in Guam. Um, you're right; the timing is, is a little uncertain, but because we're spending a lot of time in Guam and we recognize um, all of the potential there, we've in fact been working with the National Energy. National Renewable Energy Lab, um, NREL, which is one of the Department of Energy's labs, um, specifically to look at the potential for renewables in Guam. And they're out there, practically as we speak, looking at potential for wind, for solar, for some tidal, um, as well as some of the energy efficiency potentials. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit on improvements that can be done in Guam. Hawaii um, and NREL is, is doing a project for us both in Guam and in Hawaii, and in both cases looking at potential renewables. But Hawaii has a lot going on, both the, the um, military bases there, of which there are many, but also Hawaiian Electric is very interested in renewables and specifically in biofuels. 
So we've been working um, with a group that involves the military and Hawaiian Electric and, and many other stakeholders um, in Hawaii, both on biofuels and on um, solar. So I think that you, that's perhaps the most advanced of any place in the United States right now. If I could just add to that really Jeremy Carr. Br- briefly, um, because I think implicit in your question, but, but I think we should make it explicit because it's important. Uh, it matters that Hawaii and Guam are located where they are. In other words, places where you have situational opportunities to do this that are more cost-effective may be places that are islands that are more remote. Uh, Hawaii, in particular, has very high costs of traditional energy. So you do have an opportunity to sort of use those as test beds. And again, in ways that are sort of more durable to a budget process uh, that may or may not go in, in your direction in the future. And so I think, again, that's a sort of unique uh, thing that we have at some of our, uh, our sort of uh, bases that are not here in the U.S., uh, and particularly ones on islands like that. Diego Garcia, it's got to be expensive to have energy there. Absolutely. Let's have our next audience question, please. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for your time today. My name is Jonathan Kevlis with the Kevlis Group. Uh, my question is about the decision-making processes uh, in the Navy and elsewhere in the government that go into making capital investment decisions, particularly those for, say, buildings or planes or fleets that are energy-intensive. Uh, is it now rule uh, or just a change in culture that, say, life cycle costs of an investment are taken into consideration rather than the capital budget person saying, well, I'm rewarded for doing something cheap, and I don't really care about the operational guy and what he has to pay for utility bills. So is it is there still a culture where some people do it based on an old way and other mm-hmm. folks are mandated to do it on a life cycle cost basis? Or is life cycle cost uh, analysis for investment decisions becoming uh, mandatory? Well, let me start by saying that my entire experience with the federal government procurement process is the last 18 months in this position. And I have found that the federal government procurement process is way beyond my area of expertise. Um, but I, I can tell you a couple, a couple things that I do know. That within the Department of Defense, the services don't buy our own liquid fuels. That those are the decisions on what fuels to buy are done by the Defense Logistics Agency. And so, you know, we work with them, obviously, and we set the criteria to some extent, but those decisions are made um, by, you know, centrally. And and they make their decisions based on a whole variety of, of factors, price being, I think, one of the primary ones. In terms of other acquisitions on the basis, for example, the decision as to whether to install solar panels um, or not, that's made by, for a number of reasons, a number of decisions. But I, I think that the actual question about how much to pay for a solar panel um, and whether that's a good investment as opposed to not is something that the, the local people have the first say in, um, but many of us have a, have a finger in that. Whether it's a change in culture, I would say yes, because people are now more interested in energy efficiency. Is it totally, does that outweigh everything else? Probably not. But when they're deciding to put solar panels on a base, do they consider the fact that a lot of coal was burned making those panels? Do they look at the whole life cycle of that material? Because a lot of uh, photovoltaic involves a lot of nasty chemicals, and a lot of energy goes into the making of them. yeah, I, you know, I'm, I can't get very precise simply because I'm outside of my, my field of expertise in terms of how, what they do consider in there. But I can say that no, they don't go through the whole life cycle. For example, um, do they assume a carbon cost of the electricity? Do, would a plant in North, uh, a plant, it would a, an installation in North Carolina, for example, where a lot of the electricity is produced by coal, be able to consider that coal when they're deciding whether to put in a, a solar panel. Not really. I mean, I think that we can... Is that a goal, to, to, to consider that life cycle analysis? I think the goal would be have a public policy because our, our, um, our, our spending, any of the Defense Department's spending, is overseen by Congress. 
And so I have to go to Congress and defend our budget and defend what we have spent. And so it can be an argument, but it's not necessarily a policy. These are not these are not small questions uh, either. In fact, there's a new hybrid drive uh, ship that the Navy's blanking on the name offhand. I don't know if you happen to remember it. The Macon Island. The Macon Island. And I I just did a quick, uh, based on some numbers that I got. You know, the life cycle cost savings on fuel, if you assume steady state over 50 year lifespan, which is a lousy thing to assume, but is at least functional for for projecting. It's like 150 million dollar savings just for that one ship. Right. So it's versus the conventional alternative. So it's not insignificant how we do treat these, but as as but, Secretary Financial noted, it's it's a very opaque and complex but process. But those are ones that are relatively easy for us to do because right. we can make that kind of assessment and say, let's do a, let's let's um, put in a hybrid drive for this ship. But some of the others are murkier when you're talking about not buying electricity that's generated from coal. Um, it, it's a harder decision to make. Let's have our next audience question. Yes. Uh, good morning. My name is Elena Almedo. I'm an intern for the Office of Environmental Policy and Compliance. And um, my question is about terrorism and how much it, terrorism affects our energy security and our infrastructure. And um, take, for example, um, the current grid that we have um, that uses technology um, from 100 years ago. Um, how, how is the military involved in improving this security threat? We have a few minutes left. Any questions? We're, we're very actively looking at specifically the vulnerability of the commercial electric grid for all of our installations. Um, it is something that we've recognized, and it's frankly, it's not just the terrorists. It's fires. It's you know other kinds of issues that um, can affect the grid. Um, what are we doing about it? We're doing. We we clearly have backup um, generation on all the bases to protect. Resources, but I think we're trying to get a little more sophisticated about that. I mentioned before that we're looking at ways of combining um, our bases into some smart grids and using those as a way of protecting ourselves from grid vulnerability. I think that as each of our each of our bases that and we do buy mostly from um, the commercial grid, we're looking at how do we what kind of backup do we have. Renewables make a lot of sense there. In some cases, you're putting in renewables as a grid backup, so it's not just um, comparing against the price of electricity you'd be buying from the local utility. You have another value for doing the renewables. So thank you for raising that. Good point. And, and just, to, again, to build on that, uh, I was talking to Jim Wilsey yesterday, former CIA director, has been very involved in smart grid issues, and he sort of said, well, you know, where we're getting right now, we can kind of maybe stop the nine-year-old hackers, and we need to be able to stop maybe at least the 12-year-old hackers by doing some some slightly <laughs> bigger things. Uh, so there's a lot of vulnerability there. Again, this can be, uh, we mentioned this in our report, but but uh, by having certain types of distributed energy, as, as Secretary Fansteel alluded to, you can address that. And certainly for the military, one of the things that's surprising is even some of our international bases they're pretty much dependent on these foreign grids in many cases that mm-hmm. we don't control. Now, the exact basis and what the dependencies are classified. So it's not fully known, but it is at least known that we haven't fully addressed that. And I think it's it's something that we absolutely need to address. So if those bases generated their, their own power, they'd be more independent yeah. secure. Let's wrap up quickly. Uh, uh, Jeremy Carl, you're at the Hoover Institute and work are part of Secretary Schultz's energy task force there. Uh, we both heard him say earlier this week that there's a lot of yakety yak yak. Uh, on the political right about climate change and denial. And so I just want to close here by asking you, is that holding us back from these kinds of moves toward clean energy that has become a political litmus test in some circles to, to deny climate change and to say clean energy, clean energy is, is hooey? I didn't know better. I would swear that was a partisan question, which I would, I think, of course, well, avoid. Um, you know, I think, obviously, climate change, for better or for worse, actually, I think pretty much for worse, I think we definitively say has become very politicized, become a political football. Uh, you know, we can argue about what the origins of that are. You know, I think maybe Al Gore being the initial spokesman was probably not the best political move, regardless of the substance, uh, who at least was publicly identified with it. But certainly, I mean, the again, regardless of one's views of anthropogenic climate change, and I, you know, I believe personally largely in what the consensus science says about that, but... Um, you know, there's a lot of people on the right who don't, and then there's a lot of people on the right who I think don't 
uh, or, or maybe do, but are very suspicious of the way that it will be handled by uh, Democratic administrations or going to the UN. Um, but this is the secretary of, former Secretary of State sure. saying there was yakety yak yak. Sure. So. Well, you know, Schultz has, has his opinions, and those <laughs> should be respected, uh, and, I, and I certainly do. Uh, I think one of the things Schultz has said uh, to me on many occasions when we've talked about this is that ultimately within 10 or 20 years, maybe not, this is not the ideal way, but it will become obvious that in his view, uh, you know, something will be going on uh, that will be pretty substantial and that, that kind of, uh, you know, and I think ultimately that will be falsified one way. One of the two projections will be falsified, either the dire projection or the optimistic projection. Right. Uh, as Bill McKibben says, the laws of physics and chemistry will trump the laws of Congress. We need, <laughs> we need to end it there. Our thanks to Jackie Fanestiel, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and Jeremy Carl from Stanford's Hoover's Institution for joining us Today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming, listening on the radio, and joining us on C-SPAN. Thank you very much.